to Sports and Society. This is Brad. I'm here with Carl. How are you doing today, man? I am doing well. I am currently completely fascinated by Damian Lillard right now, so I'm excited to talk about him, <laughs> and I'm also excited to talk about uh, the doom that is climate change. <laughs> well, let's start on that high note. Uh, what what Damian Lillard's been ridiculous forever, but it's it just seems to get more absurd, doesn't it? It does. And what really stuck out to me this week, uh, in particular, a game he played a couple nights ago, I, I mean, he pulled up from 35 to 40 feet probably six or seven times, uh, and he made 75% of the ones that he pulled up from way deep on. And that was in stark contrast to something that Charles Barkley said on an interview on Conan O'Brien's podcast. And Barkley said he's against the four-point line because he thinks making a shot from that deep is lucky, that it doesn't take talent to do it. And so he thinks it would become kind of a sideshow thing for that reason. And while I don't disagree that it would feel a little sideshowy, I think what Damian Lillard is doing in particular, um, I don't know, just kind of throws a wrench uh, a little bit into that argument. Uh, because what he's doing is not lucky. Uh, it would be lucky if Shaq made one from 40 feet. Uh, but the confidence with which he's doing it and the way he makes it feel like it's a basketball motion um, makes me think that there's not, there's certainly not luck involved. It's an incredible skill. But not only that, that there is potentially space in basketball for it to become a part of the game. And if someone should be rewarded more for with more points based on their proximity to the basket, then I feel like Damian Lillard's a pretty good argument for a four-point line. Hmm. Not that I want it. I just feel like the conversation maybe has changed with the way he's he's doing it and the way he's playing, more than Steph Curry even for me. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like Charles Barkley did himself a great disservice by couching his argument in those terms because it's not mm-hmm. like no, no one in their right mind is going to argue that Steph Curry and Damian Lillard do not, that this is not an incredibly skillful thing that they're able to do. And we just see that because the percentages vary greatly amongst those that can and can't do that. It's not like if everybody, if it was entirely luck, we'd expect them all to be shooting the same, roughly the same percentage, right? So, uh, Charles, you can just go stuff it with that argument. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it is, you know, but there, it's funny to me because it's why he would resort to that when I think there are lots of legitimate reasons not to embrace a four point line mm-hmm. in terms of like, I think we see that um, uh, analytics driven basketball has um, led to the Houston Rockets, which are the most boring team in basketball. Um, in some ways is uh is only going to get worse if you institute that four point line yeah um, and so i think it's also you you um you dilute some of the some of the components of what makes the game interesting you change the balance much more in favor of the guards and I, it's just i think there's arguments against it but it does raise some interesting questions i mean at the very least it's um it's changing how the game is played right now which i think is worth well, anyway, I mean, I think we've seen – that's what all the research with Steph showed was that it was less even um, his points when he was on the floor, but his ability to make 
people pay attention to him from wherever he was that changed the game for the Warriors, that that was what Mm -hmm. opened up space for every single other player on the floor. And I find that to be the most interesting piece of it all, the space piece. And I was, so I have avoided uh, researching and reading and really following up on the four-point line argument, even to the the overwhelming amount of information on analytics in the NBA now, I kind of have maybe subconsciously steered away from. Uh, I don't. I, I would maybe need to interrogate why that is, but I think it's because it's it it makes me kind of scared that it won't be as fun uh, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form, and so I like have just like turned away from it. Um, but I as I have educated myself a little bit more this week i was fascinated to find that a lot of teams have four point lines on their uh, practice courts Hmm. Uh, and they also have um just a myriad of lines and drawings all over their so they have certain squares in certain places and i forget which team it was i think it might be the hawks they even put the numbers of the players they want to go to which squares hmm so they have these little like three by three squares all over the court and different plays call for different players to get in literally inside the square before the play starts. Hmm. And in particular, one that really stood out to me was the Bucks. They essentially just have four squares in the four corners of the half court and then Giannis at the top of the key. And if you watch them play, that's their offense every mm-hmm. single time. Uh, and it's all about space. Uh, and so they were talking about how they really wanted Trey Young uh, to be alongside Giannis because he uh, is pursuing like Damian Lillard to be able to pull up from anywhere. Uh, and how powerful having someone like that along Giannis would be mm-hmm. via analytics um, because of space. That's what it's all about. Well, it is. That's fascinating. And I think, um, you know, I, I too share your concern that it makes the game boring and overly formulaic. But I do think that we're saved by postseason where we see that these things don't matter Mm -hmm. nearly as much. That we see that the Rockets analytics driven game falls apart when they run into these teams that are really trying hard on defense and scheme to take away the things that they know are most valuable. Um, And we see that the teams that have mid-range shooters of all things are the teams that thrive in the postseason. I mean, that's what Kawhi Leonard showed last year, that if you can have a guy that can get to his spot and make 10 to 18-footers over and over and over again, that that's about the most uh, powerful tool you can have on the floor. Right. Yeah, uh, a high percentage counter on every trip down is different than corner threes in those Mm – in a single game that decides who moves on. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, so I'm intrigued. Um, I'm going to take this back to the NBA in a moment, but um, I'm intrigued for this week by the Tata Steel chess tournament happening in the Netherlands right now. Um, uh, and many levels. One, because there's an American leading right now, Fabiana Corona, the runner-up for world championships, uh, last year or twenty, whatever, twenty eighteen, um, uh, is winning. Looks like he's going to win the tournament uh, over Magnus, who's coming in second. 
Uh, Magnus, meanwhile, has done this amazing feat where he's not lost a classical game in over 115 games at this point, which is just absurd. Um, But I think what's most impressive for me and what stood out from this is the memory that these guys have. Um, that I think that that's what sets them apart in some ways as the athletes that they are, is that they can remember games, not just their own games, but games that they've studied of other players dating back 10, 15 years um, and know who that is, who they were playing, what the next move was in any given situation. Um, which is just mind-blowing to see them kind of pull that knowledge out. So mm-hmm. Fabiano Coruano, after his win yesterday, was talking about how, you know, he knew that this pawn move led to a more interesting game. Uh, and so when the other guy made a rook move, um, that that led to a more dangerous line that was harder to maintain over the course of the game. And yet the other guy had forgotten that, but Caruana had not. And so that's like, that was the difference in the game, was a memory of how this game had played out when people had been in similar positions in the past. Uh, And that's just staggering to me. And it made me think about other sports. I think we see the same kind of need for memory in a lot of sports, particularly the strategy-based things. So I think about cricket and football and people that knew what they remembered from previous situations happened in that moment. Um, But it also made me think about something like basketball, where maybe a feel for the game is more important than remembering exactly what happened in the moment. But then again, I mean, there's incredible levels of memory and uh, uh, mental acuity that goes into knowing how to read these defenses and what to do in each particular moment. Uh, so just I'm, I'm intrigued by that level and that that take on our athleticism and, and sports. That really is fascinating. Uh, a few things stand out to me, um, maybe just to list them. Uh, it, it, I understand, I think that it's true that that's what Magnus might do better than everybody else. Is that right? Just that he has the best memory and has more games logged in his brain than anyone else well, I think uh, it's, to a certain degree? To a certain degree, yes, but also he doesn't have to work as hard at it. So he will tell you that he doesn't work nearly as hard as these other guys do, and yet it just comes naturally him to remember and then mm-hmm. have the intuition to be able, not necessarily to remember the game that it came from, but to know that in this position, I'm pretty sure that this is the best move, where the other folks, it's a little bit more of a stilted process of trying to figure out what they remember, and he just, it seems to come naturally to him. Well, and so that piece is what becomes even more fascinating when you think about these maybe uh, phrases that are euphemistic that we use a lot in sports, so like experience Mm. uh, or veteran, which if we were to distill those down a little bit, maybe what we would arrive to is a more useful um, metric like memory. Like actually the reason that veteran is good is because they have more memories of this, even in something like basketball, like they've come down the court more times and seen what is successful based on what the defense looks like in that given moment or a quarterback looking out over uh, the defense before the snap and saying, like, I've seen this a whole bunch. I, I, I know it intuitively because I remember it. Uh, and kind of memory may be just like a more specific way of saying those sorts of things. 
Mm-hmm. When I think about like um, how that comes differently to different people too, I mean, I think about John Morant, who has just been incredible to watch this year. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff, but um, like you see these these young players when they run a screen and roll and the, some of the things that they're doing. Mm-hmm. When you see these young guys do things like you know curl back under the screen, get somebody on their hip behind them, mm-hmm. and like controlling the play in that way, and you're like, man, I've seen. You know, yeah. we've seen all these veterans do that. I don't expect this guy that's 20 years old to be able to do that. And in some ways, I'm like, that's probably just because he's the first time he did it. He's like, ah, oh, okay, I see why you're doing that now. Mm-hmm. And not everybody has that capacity to like pick it up and recognize what in that moment it was that led them to be successful in that particular mm-hmm. play. Yeah, and that brings in the learning piece, right? And then you're talking mm-hmm. about like pedagogy and teaching. And that leads me to thinking of the analytic piece, which is essentially a shortcut, right? It's mm-hmm. like uh, if you if you what the article I was reading was saying is like a twenty year old guy that has never had any coaching before ever arrives in the NBA, and these really complex systems are thrown at him. The learning curve is momentous, and it's why a lot of players don't really peak. Uh, these exceptional athletes don't really reach their potential until like fourth or fifth year and how like analytics um, are hoping to expedite that process. But not only that, it changes the nature of coaching, which is to say it changes the nature of embedding memories in a player's brain, um, so to speak. So that's fascinating. Well, I think it's just worthwhile to note as well that we often forget how smart these guys are and Mm -hmm. and women are. you know, I'll, uh, I don't want to throw this particular person under the bus, but there's a guy I met a while ago who had all the physical talents. He ran like a four, two and a half, forty, um, good hands, wide receiver. Um, but uh, the guy was not particularly intelligent um, mm-hmm. and wanted to make it in the NFL. Well, come to find out, like he was telling me all about how he just couldn't figure out how to read routes because these guys in the NFL they all go out. And they're not running a particular route. They're reading the coverage to know which of four or five possibilities they're going to do in that moment. And the quarterback is doing the same thing. And you have to be on the same page or else obviously you wind up in a major uh, problem. And so just Mm -hmm. that level, we don't even think about, you know, we don't think about wide receivers as being these really intelligent uh, folks on the football field. But they're doing the same kind of reading and manipulation required to do that in the same way that anybody else is. Mm Mm-hmm. So coincidentally, that same interview with Charles Barkley, he talked about this uh, and where uh, while we may not agree with his reasoning for being against the four point line, he was saying the exact same thing. Uh, And in Charles Barkley language, uh, I think the quote is something like there are no dummies in the NBA. Mm -hmm. um, And he says what, in his opinion, often separates the seventh or eighth player off the bench from the first or second player off the bench is not athleticism uh but it's their mind and their capacity to mm-hmm. withhold a lot of information yeah absolutely mm-hmm. well let's take our very small brains and think about climate change what do you say <laughs> let's do it <laughs> well what um you know, we talked about this in passing at the end of last week's episode, but what, um, have you been watching the, uh, Australian open? Any thoughts that come to your mind from this year's edition? 
So I have only watched a little bit, so there's no way I can speak to uh, the coverage of the tournament in a comprehensive way. Uh, what I have seen, I haven't heard one mention of climate change, and I haven't even heard a mention about the air quality on live coverage. That being said, I've probably watched 6% of their coverage. So they may be talking about it a lot. And I could even see ESPN kind of putting together some of their feel-good stories about it. Um, so I, I haven't seen anything myself. Um, and even with that, I, I haven't seen as many headlines this week as the weeks before um, about the relationship between the tournament and climate change and the fires. Um so I haven't seen anything stand out all that much. Hmm. That being said, I haven't been paying that close of attention. Have you? Yeah, I haven't been paying that close of attention either. I think what stands out to me, though, um, is just the the way that the players reacted when they first got there and the, the issues with air quality and all that stuff um, mm -hmm. and how quickly this conversation that could be bigger – always seems to revert back to just being about sports um, yeah. and the performance of the individuals involved. Um, and that's, I, I do think though that it's worth noting that in my, um, in my kind of reading and preparation for this week, there is a broad consensus out there in the world that sports are being impacted by climate change. Um, mm -hmm. And that, you know, that the kind of talk about, you know, rain, uh, excessive rain events, these droughts, these fires, excessive heat events. And so we think, see things like cycling, implementing an extreme weather protocol. We see things like runners that are more likely to wind up in the hospital after a run. We see these tennis matches and everything that are that are being affected by the same heat and, and conditions. Um, and so it makes me wonder, like, if we were to watch this on the BBC how our understanding and experience of that would be different and whether it's just purely um, a U.S. political thing in some ways that you just don't touch this particular particular angle. Because, mm. I mean, the U.N., um, the Olympic Committee has come out and been very public saying that um, the climate change is one of their top criteria for picking places moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are major sporting institutions that are saying this we've seen fifa's moved the world cup in qatar to the winter time because of heat issues um so what like how is that understanding in those places different or is it just a given and so they don't even feel the need to talk about it it's just a given that's part of their coverage whereas we don't it's not uh, it's a given in the other direction that's something we're never going to include in our conversations yeah, and I feel like that raises a lot of interesting questions about where change comes from and what acts as a catalyst when it mm. comes to something like climate change or these, if we were to lump climate change in with other broader social, political, economic, global issues um, and how sports in that way may not be the one driving change until they are affected and it's that which we watch being affected that affects us mm -hmm. um and so yeah that raises like or kind of like uplifts that aspect of it um and there are like you mentioned so many sports that are being affected um and there's like countless examples now like the list keeps growing as we 
increase the nuance of how we're paying attention, I think. Um, so you think of like um, practice hours in the United States for youth sports is changing uh, immensely. Um, I was really intrigued to read about um, the entire marathon course in Tokyo is being covered in a heat blocking pavement. Hmm. Um, and they're like planting trees along the route. If you think about that, like the shade given by that tree is going to be useful for the runners for about <laughs> a 0.3 seconds. Um, but nonetheless, the marathon itself uh, necessitates it. So like hmm. in that way, it came to about like the drastic uh, extent to which we will go to preserve uh, a sport that's kind of like substantiated or bronzed and like this is what we expect of the olympic marathon so we'll do whatever it takes for that marathon um hmm. well and that raises questions for me about whether this is a missed opportunity in many ways to raise that awareness hmm. um and sports as a vehicle for making people understand what's actually happening and how it's different from where it has been in the past and so i think for me, that gets to one of the central questions I have and maybe internal dilemmas I have. Um, and I would love to know what you think about it. And I feel like it's worth pointing out that this is something you and I have studied uh, <laughs> like at an academic level. Uh, so we both might kind of come at it, come at the conversation from an academic lens. And at times, I think that's super useful. And other times, there might be other ways to have the conversation. But nonetheless, you mentioned these big organizations like the Olympic Committee, the UN, uh, and then, of course, all the leagues now have uh, their own environmental framework. Uh, even the NFL and NASCAR have environmental programs. Uh, I was really intrigued to see this week that F1 signed on to the UN environmental sports framework, hmm. um, and they are marketing and pushing and making it very apparent that uh, they are planning to be carbon neutral by 2030. And so I guess what stands out to me amidst all that is how simplified things become when they get marketed by these big organizations mm. and how, in fact, these things that are being simplified are extremely complex. Uh, and not just in like, it's not that they're hard to understand. It's more that they're just multifaceted and every piece of the problem can be looked at from like 12 different angles. And oftentimes like 10 of the 12 angles like have merit to them, depending on like how you formulate your knowledge and decide what is good or bad. Uh, and so in that way, I wind up in this place of wanting to kind of like critique and hate on these organizations especially something like NASCAR and the NFL. But then I also don't want to go too far and like hate on everything um, because I, I don't know if that's good either. Um, and so w one of the cases that I often have cited in my academic papers that always, that first alighted me to this kind of phenomenon was when uh, it was in the early 90s, but Folger's Coffee started um, a, a fair trade coffee uh, 
and how much it pissed off all of the environmentalists that were part of the fair trade movement, that this massive corporation that had been responsible for enormous environmental destruction and, um, you know, uh, marginalizing of millions of coffee growers around the world all of a sudden gets to put the fair trade tag on their coffee can. Uh, and like, it's like, well, what do you want them to do? Not do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what do you do when the organization that you don't want to exist joins your cause to some extent? Um, and it, it creates a real dilemma, I think. Well, it does because I think there's so many levels to it. I mean, on one level, you know, Walmart is another example, right? I mean, they have done some significant things to green themselves. And, you know, I am not going to say that all of them are empty. Some of their methods are certainly empty. Um, but do I ever want to critique someone who's taking any even one step in that direction? And right. And the hope that, you know, if, even if it's just them acknowledging that it exists necessitates some action in the long run and, and helps change the paradigm in some ways. Um, and, yeah, so it is it is a tough situation because I don't think we want to – well, I think this is where, you know, we can see the gray in it, whereas it's not um, perhaps everybody that has that privilege to see that gray in it. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I think there's been an uproar this week about um, Bernie Sanders and Joe Rogan. Uh, I don't know if you've paid attention to this at all. Uh, I have not, no. So Joe Rogan has endorsed Bernie Sanders, saying that he's that's who he thinks he'll vote for in the primary. Mm -hmm. um, and Joe Rogan is such a fascinating character in that he'll give up his platform to anyone, and yet personally he's fairly liberal and left-leaning. And so... Mm -hmm. There have been a number of folks that have come out and suggested that he needs to denounce that or that um, Joe Rogan has endorsed him and all this stuff um, because he's Joe Rogan has said inflammatory things and said and, and had people that are very, very evil in some ways on his podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, and, and I'm not going to say anybody is wrong in this situation. It, there's a complicated thing about if you do that, who are you alienating from a political sense that might listen to that ordination and, and move forward with that, even if it's not the same level of purity that we want it to have? Um, how do we respond to those situations? And I think you and I, as as white dudes, have the ability to sit back and say, hey, this is complex. We need to... Mm -hmm. We need to look at all the complexity of it where not everybody has that luxury. And so I think it's uh, it's worthwhile noting that here while also noting that I will stand by the fact I think these are very complex issues that I don't fully understand, but that it's hard for me to critique someone that is taking a step towards environmental progress, even if it's a crappy step. I might still complain about them, but mm -hmm. it's still progress in some ways. Yeah, I love all of that. And it... it I think I don't know if this is good or bad or what, but I think what I've done maybe to try and thwart my own looming melancholia uh, <laughs> along these lines is when I find myself in these places, I I find myself wanting to advocate for what I call the and. So it's like yes, something is better than nothing, and 
we have a whole lot more to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like, thanks for doing that. And, um, let's, let's have another conversation on the other side of it kind of thing. Well, I think, yeah, I completely agree. And I, you know, I get it that it's exhausting to live mm-hmm. in that space. Right. I mean, you and I, I think know that that's why we're, we're tired and mentally drained a fair amount of the time mm-hmm. yeah. because nothing is ever quite good enough. Um, but at the same time, once we let ourselves think that something is good enough, then that's automatically where we're going to wind up in the end. And reality is we're, we're not there. Um, mm-hmm. and we're not going to be there probably within our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. It did have me thinking, and this was a brand new thought for me, so I don't, I don't have much on it. Um, but I was introduced recently to the field of teaching what is called difficult knowledge mm-hmm. uh, and the complexities therein. For example, uh, what brand of the Holocaust do you teach to a seven-year-old, right? Like how, how far mm-hmm. should you go and what do you include in the lesson? Uh, and if you're a curriculum writing organization, who gets to write that curriculum and what photos are in and what photos are out, what videos are in, what videos are out. Um, And maybe just as like a first step in towards teaching this next generation about climate change, there, I think there is like a a legitimate argument that sports could be an avenue uh, for kind of parsing out what gets taught and what doesn't get taught because it is kind of like a soft introduction to a lot of environmentalism. Um, so I just think of a kid um, watching a sporting event and in taking the example of like the NFL having breast cancer a month. What if the NFL had like climate change awareness month? Mm. Um, so, you know, something like it's a, it's an introduction to what is difficult knowledge because climate change now is within that category um because the outlook is so dire um to what extent do we teach a seven-year-old that the world is dying Mm -hmm. and that catastrophe is going to happen um and and that we can't stop a lot of the catastrophe that's in front of us um that's a tough thing to teach a kid well that is that's super interesting um Mm-hmm. And I think you're right that there's some avenues where there where sports can be interesting. Um, I think we're seeing that even in some ways in some of these other countries. We're seeing that they're exploring some of those avenues. But I mm-hmm. do think it just seems such a f- long way off. Well, and also I think it comes down to, um, you know, and this is the bottom line with environmental issues is that environmental issues require a collective response individualized response does not work when it comes to fixing environmental issues. Um, and so is by, by doing these smaller steps, are we perpetuating this individualized idea? And is that in some ways harmful because it means we're never going to get to that endpoint um, because that endpoint is so drastically different. Um, I do think that there is a point to be made there. You know, we've been kind of told that, um, you know, if you, personally recycle if you personally Mm -hmm. don't drive your car very much if you don't fly if you don't do x y and z then things will be okay that's not how it works that's not how we're going to fix this situation Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll feel better about yourself and the world will benefit from it but not to the extent necessary to make a substantial difference even if 
fifty percent of us followed through on those protocols. Um, uh, and so it does make me think about, you know, are we, what is that level that when we dilute the conversation, it actually becomes harmful to achieving the end goal, even if we're raising some level of awareness about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And that gets into the, another tricky part of it for me of when there is a commodifying of the incentive. And especially if that incentive is individual based, like you said, uh, it, it creates this space where a question emerges for me that is um, <laughs> F1 uh, committing to being carbon neutral by 2030 serves them really well right now economically, <laughs> right? Like now is the time to make a commitment like that. Uh, and... Not only that, they're seeking to add cities and add races. So they're at 21 or 22 right now, and they have plans to get maybe near 30. Hmm. And what is bad about sporting events, which I think is kind of like uh, everyone agrees, it's not the cars themselves or it's not the game itself that is all that bad or even the Olympics itself that is that bad. It's not these huge events that are that big of a deal. It's the millions of fans that come to them. Like that is the real culprit if we're measuring, you know, the CO2 that's going into the air. And so F1 in, in one instant saying we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030 and we're doing all these sustainable practices and adding cities, like talk about an offset. That's an offset. <laughs> uh, they're not really achieving anything because there's still the same incentive and the incentive is the problem. And the mm -hmm. incentive is buy a ticket to come watch us. Um, so that's the problem. And so to what extent are they doing good becomes a whole lot trickier in that space if the incentive doesn't change. Um, well, I think and that's where we get to questions too about how do we measure these things? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, you can do a lot of things that are really beneficial uh, while still remaining terrible in other ways. I mean, I think about, you know, um, you know, even if you put in uh, green barriers in your parking lot, you put a green roof on the top of your stadium, you put in, you know, solar panels to power everything inside the stadium, you're only serving vegan food, uh, if you're still NASCAR and you're still driving these vehicles and they're putting off the emissions that they're doing and you've got 300,000 people showing up, it doesn't, none of that other <laughs> stuff matters in the long run. Right. Right. Yeah. It raises questions of like, at, at what point uh, is government the only thing capable, capable of de-incentivizing something? or disincentivizing, what's the word? I don't know the word. But creating a, or uh, putting a policy or a law around uh, humans so that they that we don't kill ourselves. Um, something like a speed limit being a simple example, right? I'm saying mm -hmm. like, if you drive faster than this, you're gonna kill yourself and you're gonna kill someone else. So therefore, as the government, we have a right uh, to limit how fast you can drive your car. What's gonna happen if they say like, you can't build a hundred thousand seat stadiums. It's bad for the environment. You have to build a twenty thousand seat stadium. Mm -hmm. Something like that would be crazy. Well, I think we often forget the other side of this too. It's not like, um, and so this is where kind of uh, 
it gets super complex in these ways, right? I mean, so even if all we're doing is watching it from television on at home, I mean, we're still talking about a significant impact. If you're talking about a million people that have got their TVs turned on because this sporting event is on, right? that's a significant power outlay as well. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this is, we can get into all these kinds of complexities too, and it really does convolute the matter. I mean, we can, you know, I'm thinking as we're talking about this, you know, they have these climate marches in DC and it's like, well, how does everybody get there? Right. Um, um, you know, on the flip side, you've got the Tea Party rallies where they're all taking public transportation and that's subsidized. So they're convoluting their message by showing up there. It's, <laughs> right. We can't, what, how do we ever at any instance actually stand fully behind our principles um, and what level of standing behind them is good enough for us to congratulate someone. Exactly. Yeah. And who gets to decide, right? Where that line is. Um, yeah. It all comes down to power and, and who has the power for adjudicating goodness or badness, uh, which again incorporates then the metrics who gets to decide what metrics we're using and where are they applied and how and when and for whom, and who's benefiting? It's all, it's all there and all very, very messy. I'm not sure you're aware of this, Kyle, but by, due to the fact that we have a podcast, we are the adjudicators of, of good and evil in the world. So uh, now that you know that, uh, we'll we'll just wait for your judgments to come down. That makes me think we need to uh, create an an award. <laughs> okay. We need a sports and society award. I I would dig a, an award show. I'm down yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it makes me think of um, how quickly you and I would write a 40-page criteria sheet for how to win the award. <laughs> for each award, we would we yeah. would of course have multiples here. So yeah. <laughs> Talk about diluting. <laughs> it would be almost meaningless by the time we handed it to someone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man. Um, you mentioned you wanted to talk about the League Two organization that seemingly kind of stands out amongst the crowd for some different reasons. I do. So I think that, um, you know, we see examples of people doing this all over and i think that when we see this so this team i'm about to mention uh, i think what sets them apart in some ways is that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is and you can see that so this is a team forest green rovers football club in league two which is the fourth tier of english soccer um they do 100 percent green energy they don't put pesticides herbicides on their pitch uh, they do water conservation methods and not waste any water. They serve only vegan food to their players. Um, and all of this stuff I look at and I say, all right, so this costs more money. You're a League Two team, which means you're making practically no money anyway. Um, and so when I see those kind of things line up, that's when I start to get excited about the possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think about the power that would happen if we saw the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers say, we believe that due to the climate change, a vegan diet is the only way to move forward mm-hmm. uh, and start doing that. Or, you know, we believe that we have to do solar power and only uh, serve vegetarian food in our stores around the shop. Or we're going to reuse uniforms from year to year and not take the revenue that comes from having a new uniform to sell. 
mm-hmm. every year. That I think that when we start seeing those really bold statements, that that's something that, A, I'm now going to root for that team more, so they get that incentive out of it. But that's never going to pay off in the long run, I think, for the team like this League Two football club. They're not going to get enough fans from this to pay off whatever the cost that they're incurring is. And so that's what I hope to see more clubs and leagues and governments pushing for uh, in the future. It almost seems to come with a, um, or, or, or it, it, it's imbued with a sort of activism as opposed to a marketability aspect, what you're describing. Right, it's like when when a, when a league or an organization or what whatever it might be is really deserving of a sports and society award <laughs> is when they are taking action that's not going to pay out, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe like that's a good metric for saying like how good are you? Well, you're doing something that's actually costing you money and causing you to lose revenue, but. Uh, it's uh, being upheld or it's substantiated in, the, in this activist foundation and therefore um, kind of garnering a whole lot more goodness. Hmm. All of this makes me wonder, and, uh, you know, Bill, I know you're listening to the podcast here, but um, our personal friend Bill Gates obviously has the revenue to uh, start a new or buy a football team or a basketball team. And we know he's got incredible uh, environmental vision. What would happen if you had a philanthropist take over a team and just do it? Yeah. Um, Where he didn't need to make money from it. It was just a way to to make a statement. Um, Mm -hmm. And I hate to think that that's what it would take because I hate that kind of great man vision of history. Right. Um, But I do think it'd be really compelling to see how the world would respond to that, that moment. Yeah. Yeah, and that arrives in that same space of uh, which do we prefer the uh, the goodwill that spreads because of the Olympics or the environmental harm done by the Olympics? Mm-hmm. It's like how can goodwill offset environmental damage and uh, what has to be happening around it? And so I think that would apply in the same way as if like, uh, a really wealthy white man buys a team and makes it the most sustainable team on earth and loses money on that team. Um, what have we gained? But uh, the education piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That did make me think of how fascinating I found that part in the Donald Sterling podcast done by ESPN 30 for 30. Uh, when I forget the guy's name, Bill Gates's partner, um, bought oh, the Clippers. Steve, Steve Ballmer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he offered, like, what was it? Like, $1.8 billion or something? Yeah, something and absurd. she's like, I want two. And he's like, okay, two. What in the world? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That podcast is phenomenal for those that haven't listened to it. Yeah, it really is exceptional. But. All right. Well, anything else you got on climate change, man? I think I'm good there. All right. Well, what are you paying attention to this week then? Uh, I'm going back to the NBA, and I think I'm paying attention to Zion Williamson. And it's not because I find him all that like compelling or fascinating for basketball play. I'm more interested in the media surrounding him. And... 
how how intense the exploitation feels right now um and it raises that interesting dilemma of watching these young professional athletes uh have to kind of exist in that space and wonder to what extent they have the power in it Hmm. um and it's it's like climate change as we just discussed a little bit murky i feel in that space of like uh, in one way, you could say Zion is exploiting this moment, and it's going to pay out for him later when he signs the largest NBA contract ever, you know, for $500 million or something. Um, but at the same time, there's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of organizations making money off of Zion while he's on his path to that contract. Um, and this kind of flash-in-the-pan moment of his first few games uh, it seems to bring all of that kind of like bubbling to the surface for me. I can like just kind of feel it there. It's kind of granular when you're watching, but it, the sensationalism of it, I guess, is what makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm just going to kind of watch and see how that plays out, maybe even though it brings on and engenders a whole lot of discomfort at the same time. Yes, I can understand all of that. And I, I will say that, I'm a little bit different and I will push back a little bit and say, I actually am very interested in him from a basketball perspective. Yeah. Uh, And just, I think, um, he's an exceptional basketball player. And I, uh, in some ways the media circus takes away some of the enjoyment of that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but I will say like seeing him, uh, in that first game scoring 17, points in a row while the coach is trying to take him out but i mean you just there's no dead ball to take him out it was one of the most exciting moments of the year and that wasn't cultivated by media just like while it's happening it's it's exceptional to think about happening yeah yeah like the sensationalism feels deserved in a lot of ways and so that's what like makes it feel so weird i think it's like that was incredible (laughs) yeah well, but also, yeah, when does it, when does that take away for yeah. somebody like you and I who have this fundamental distrust of sensationalism in general, mm-hmm. when do we see that and it takes away from our enjoyment of something that was actually phenomenal? Right. Yeah, that's well said. Um, what about you? So I am still paying a lot of attention to baseball for me. I um I don't really care that much about baseball, if I'm being bluntly honest. But um, this, the reaction to this Houston Astros thing is still fascinating to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was seeing one of their pitchers come out and apologize, but also share some information that suggested there's more to come out that um, that this is actually a very common situation. You know, he talked about how six of the eight teams in the playoffs in 2017 were using more than one signal um, at a time, even when there weren't runners on base, suggesting that everyone knew that everybody else was doing this. Um, wow. Uh, and so what does that mean for the sport as a whole when that is getting to be the case? And are there going to be things that come out here in the near future that uh, uncover that this is a much bigger thing and that how do we respond when we think it's one team doing it versus – there's 20 teams doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, the whole situation is very interesting to me. And also, even beyond that, to see what players apologize, what players don't apologize. Um, it's just a fascinating situation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I haven't been paying that much attention other than that last piece you just mentioned. I keep seeing players' names and headlines detailing how they have or have not fallen on one side or the other. Uh, and so that I, that'll be fascinating to watch. Like, who's going to really sanction this and come down on it? And who's going to say, like, this is just what we do. This is baseball. No one's No one's at fault here. Well, especially in the world of baseball where it seems like nobody's on the same team's for very long anymore and so yeah. these houston astros guys are all over the, the league at this point um well, so, it, that's how the story broke right yeah it was I like mean, someone on another team saying yeah. it and then someone on another team saying it and someone else saying it yeah one about how people are mad at those first guys for saying it but what, how do you respond to that yeah it's fascinating i mean there's yeah. so much so much to it yeah um, but Anyway, I'll be paying attention to baseball for a little bit for all the wrong reasons. It doesn't make me want to watch the games anymore, but uh, <laughs> it is a narrative that uh, is interesting to follow. Yeah, indeed. Well, cool. All right, well, we want to leave it there? Yeah. All right, folks. Well, thanks for listening to Sports and Society. Please give us a rating and review and, and subscribe. Uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with more. Um in the meantime, we hope that it's a very boring sports week because that's usually good news for the world. Um, and in the meantime, uh, you have a good week, man. All right. Thanks, Brad.